0: This morning we are going to be uh, picking up where we left off last week in our series called Redefining the Good Life. And what we've been talking about the last couple weeks is how God talks about the good life. And, you know, in America we have this thing called the American Dream and we have, um, you know, we're bombarded constantly with, with images and messages that tell us what we should be living for and what the good life is. And it's that, that image or picture, whatever your you know, normal American image or picture of the good life is, stands in contrast to how God talks about the good life and what it means to live the good life and to live a life of purpose and meaning. And so that's kind of what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. And this morning, I'd like, to, I'd like to, you to think about for a minute what it is that you get the most excited about in life. What is the most important thing in your life? What what drives you? What are you building your life around? What what comes into your mind when you have nothing in particular to think about? What is it that you love to talk about? Well, I don't know how you how you would answer those questions exactly, but if you were to ask any one of those questions to Jesus, his answer would be the same. The glory of God. The glory of God is what Jesus lived and died for. It's what Jesus thought about. It's what he dreamed about. It was the thing that he was most passionate about. It was the glory of God. Now, Jesus, his name means God saves. God saves. Jesus was born in a small, insignificant, rural town to a teenage woman. His family was poor. He lived a simple life. He never traveled more than 200 miles from home. He never wrote a book. He never had children. He never married. He never ran for political office. He never ran a company. He never made much money. He wasn't physically impressive. He didn't turn any heads. The first 30 years of his life were quiet and pretty obscure. He worked a blue-collar job doing carpentry with his dad. The last three years of his life, Would change the course of history. When he was 30 years old, he started to preach and teach about what God was really like because most people believed that God liked good people and hated bad people, and that if your life was hard, it was because God was mad at you or something. But Jesus talked about God in a way no one had ever heard before. And he not only talked about God, he showed people God. He traveled from town to town to the worst parts of town. To love and heal people. He went to the poor, the homeless, the physically deformed, the spiritually oppressed, the helpless, and the outsiders. He went to prostitutes and criminals and crooked people whose lives were totally messed up. And he loved them. Crowds of hundreds and thousands of people followed him, hanging on every word he said. He was real. He had compassion on needy, high-maintenance people. He empathized. With people's grief and sorrow, but he also had a sense of humor. And here's something you might not know about Jesus he was the most humble and the most bold person who's ever lived. He's bold and humble at the same time. How many people do you know that are bold and humble at the same time? Some of us have this idea that Jesus was like this passive hipster activist type, and that if he were here today, he would have a long beard and ride around on a scooter with a book bag on his shoulder. And tattoos on his arms and sandals on his feet. And that he would spend the majority of his time organizing protests and marches and rallies and things like that. But if if Jesus were here today, he probably would have a beard and tattoos. I admit that. But I do think he would drive a pickup truck with his tools in the back. Because he was a working man. He wanted to always be in a position to help people with whatever they needed help with. And pickup trucks are just the most practical way to do that, aren't they? He was a man's man who worked hard, feared no one, and loved everyone. He stood up to arrogant, religious, and powerful people. At the same time, he defended widows and orphans. More songs have been sung to him, more books written about him, more paintings painted of him than anyone in the history of the world. Right around the t- turn of the century, Time, uh, Time Magazine called him the man of the millennium. He died at age 33 by crucifixion, which is the most humiliating and the most agonizing form of death ever invented. Crucifixion was so awful that we had to come up with a word to describe it. That word is excruciating, which literally means from the cross the typical way someone was crucified is they were hung by their arms on a cross beam, which was uh, stood up in the ground way above the ground it was not a private execution this was done in public the person was usually stripped naked their hands and feet were nailed to this wooden cross and for them because they were hanging their lungs could not take in and, and breathe out air very easily and so they would slowly die of, su- of suffocation, asphyxiation. Sometimes it took days. And, or just exhaustion because they had to, in order for them to breathe after a few hours, they would have to push themselves up on their feet, which were pierced through with nails, just to be, in order their arms, to be able to just pull themselves up enough so their lungs could expand to the point where they would be able to breathe in air. And after many hours of doing this, and it was extremely painful, by the way, extremely painful, Painful. I mean, it wasn't just the struggle to breathe. It was the physical pain of everything else. Without getting into all the details, it was the worst kind of death there is. Cicero, who was an ancient or first century Roman philosopher, described crucifixion this way. He said, it's the most cruel and disgusting punishment And then he said, the very mention of the cross should be far removed, not only from a Roman citizen's body, but from his mind, his eyes, and his ears. And yet here we are, Sunday after Sunday, telling you to think about the cross of Jesus. The cross is the one thing you should never forget. That's what I'm here to tell you today. And maybe the most curious thing about all this is that people who follow Jesus and who love Jesus claim that this cross is good news. That's the good news, that Jesus was brutally executed on a cross. Does that strike you as curious at all? In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1 through 3, the Apostle Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, which means good news, that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins he died for our sins that tells us what kind of people we are the cross does that's the only way we could be forgiven it's the only way we could have a relationship with God the only way we could know God is for Jesus to die on a cross three days later of course he rose again 40 days after that he ascended back into heaven to be with his father that's the good news On the cross, Jesus won. He defeated sin. He defeated death. He was our substitute. He gives us life. But if you think that Jesus died for you and that the story ends there, you've missed something. Because there's a bigger reason than you. There's a bigger reason than me. There's a greater purpose than us We are not the goal. We are not the end of God's plan. We are not the center of the universe. We're not the main reason that God does what he does. He is. The reason Jesus died on the cross is for God's glory. That's what he prayed. Before he took that path, he said, Father, glorify your name. That's why I'm doing this. It's for God's glory. The reason God does anything he does is for his own glory, not ours. The cross of Jesus, which is the most recognized symbol in the history of the world, is not a symbol of our greatness. The cross is a symbol of God's greatness. And so what I want you to know today, and we've been talking about this for a couple weeks now. First week we said that the the good life is full of glory. And last week, Pastor Scott talked about the good life is full of love. Well, today, we want you to know that the good life is full of humility and boldness, which comes from continually looking back to the cross. Just like Jesus was the most humble and the most bold person who's ever lived, his disciples glorify God by living with humility and boldness at the same time. And where does that come from? It comes from the cross. It comes from from looking at the cross and thinking about what happened there on the cross of Jesus. So we're going to talk a little bit about that today. In very practical terms, I hope I hope this will be clear today what it means to live this way. And so in Romans, we're going to talk about humility first. And in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, we read, we read that for by grace, the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. We're supposed to think with sober judgment about ourselves. Because and we need that command, and that command is in the Bible because human beings have this amazing ability to think too high of ourselves. We have this amazing ability to inflate our standing before God and our ego. And then in Philippians 2.3, the Apostle Paul writes again, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Now that is an amazing statement to make in and of itself. I mean, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit? And then he says, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Humility comes from, and this is about how you view yourself. That's what humility is. It's about how you look at yourself. It's having a sober view of yourself, a view that's accurate and not inflated. So humility comes from realizing what happened on the cross. Because on the cross, what we see is an innocent man suffering a brutal, agonizing, slow death. And we're told that on the cross, Jesus became sin for us. Do you know what that means? It means Jesus became you on the cross. He became your sin. He became a liar. He became a sexually immoral person. He became an arrogant person. He became someone who was greedy. I mean, he became all of our sin on the cross as our substitute. He took the punishment we deserve. That's how bad our sin is. So when we look at the cross, we should be humbled by that. We should see the cross of Jesus and see Jesus, the innocent God-man, there in our place. We, should, we need to realize that without Jesus' death on the cross, we would be lost and hopeless. We would be God's enemies today without the cross but you can go too far with humility. Humility is a really good thing. It, it might be the fundamental virtue of a follower of Jesus. But some people, there are some people who believe in Jesus and they know how wicked they are, but they've forgotten about the cross and they moved from humility to shame. They've moved from humility to shame. Shame. A disciple of Jesus living with shame is an offense to the cross. Do you ever feel like you're on probation with God? When you read the Bible, do you sometimes feel condemned? Do you, some, do you avoid reading the Bible because you don't want to feel condemned? What do you think about more, your sin or God's grace? Let me tell you something, people who live for God's glory think a lot more about God's grace than they think about their own sin. And people who live for their own glory are not humble and they're vulnerable to shame because they constantly see their sin without seeing the cross. And without the cross, you see your sin and all you have is shame because there's no covering. Without the shedding of Jesus' blood, your sin covers you. Your sin covers you. There's nowhere to hide. You're exposed to God's glory without a covering. And when you think about being in God's presence, all you want to do is run and hide. There's fear. That's what shame does. Shame tells us that God could not be pleased with you because you keep on sinning and keep on failing and your past is too dark and you've, you've messed up too many times. You've made too many bad choices and there's nowhere left to run. Your sin's going to catch up with you and God's going to pay you back in the end. But Jesus despises shame. Jesus died to remove our shame. In Romans 10 verse 11, it says that for the, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. In 1 John 2.28, some of you will remember this Verse from our last series, the Apostle John writes, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him at his coming. When Jesus appears again, when Jesus returns to earth in glory, okay, he's not going to be riding on the clouds on a scooter with a book bag on his back, sprinkling fairy dust over the world. He's going to return in power and in victory on a white horse. It says in Revelation 18, his robe will be dipped in blood. His eyes will be like fire. There will be a sword coming out of his mouth. And he will be ready to wage war on the nations, on the enemies of God. And there is going to be an army of white riders behind him on white horses, and it will not be pretty. And when people see Jesus riding in the clouds returning, most people will not be like, oh, that's that's beautiful. They will be cowering in fear and shame. But not us. When we see Jesus coming back, we should have boldness and confidence because of who God is, because of what happened on the cross. What happened on the cross sealed our future. And then in Hebrews 12, we read that, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. The founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We're to be constantly looking back to the cross. The cross means that we can have deep humility without shame. Shame is a counterfeit. Humility is the real deal. That's what we want. We should be the most humble people on the planet because of what we know happened on the cross of Jesus. C.J. Mahaney said, or he wrote this in his book, The Cross-Centered Life. He said, God is glorified when we believe with all our hearts that those who trust in Christ can never be condemned. So we need humility. We also need boldness or confidence. And, and like humility, confidence is good and it comes from God. Boldness comes from seeing yourself the way God sees you. And having sober judgment about yourself because of what happened on the cross. In Proverbs 28, we read, uh, in Proverbs 28, 1, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Now that statement, it's a proverb. So it's sort of open to interpretation, but it's not that complicated. You and I both know that wicked people oftentimes are looking over their shoulder. They're worried about what might happen if they get caught. They think about a lot. They think about what happened, what might happen if they get caught. But righteous people do not care what happens to them. These are people who know that God accepts them, not because of how good they are, but because of how good Christ is. They're continually willing to take risks and say and do things that they know will cost them something. Because they know how God feels about them, they're not afraid to do and say hard things. They're not deterred by danger. They're not living for the acceptance and praise of other people because they already have God's approval because of Jesus. People who live in view of the cross are, should be the boldest people on the planet. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 9 through 12, the Apostle Paul's comparing the ministry of the law that was handed down to Moses with the ministry of the Spirit. And what he says is, For there was if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, he's talking about the Ten Commandments, basically the law. That's the ministry of condemnation. It condemns us. If there was glory in the law, then the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed in this case what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end to an end came with glory much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we since we have such a hope we are very bold. So here's what this passage means. The law that God gave to Moses was is good. It tells us that we're sinners, it reveals the character of God. It shows us our need for a Savior, but it also condemns us. The Spirit, on the other hand, vindicates us. The Spirit points us to Jesus in the cross, and it gives us confidence. The Spirit of God does not give us; sp- is not a spirit of fear. It's a spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, which by which we cry out, "Father." We can call God our Father and relate to Him as our Father, our merciful, compassionate ever-present Father. And the glory that Moses experienced on the mountain when God gave him the law pales in comparison with the glory of the gospel or the glory of the cross because the law can never make a person right with God. Only Jesus, the righteous one, his death makes, makes the most disturbing wicked people right with God forever. And that means that a person can experience extreme boldness by seeing themselves the way that God sees them, as forgiven, as righteous, justified in Christ. But like humility, boldness has sort of an evil brother, and that is arrogance. We can take take boldness too far, can't we? There are a lot of people who believe in Jesus, but they think way too much of themselves They forget that God is way more passionate about his own glory than he is about them. You know that, right? God is more passionate about his own glory than he is about you. You need to know that today. Where does your confidence come from? Does it come from having a great day or a great week? Does it come from getting all kinds of praise or approval from people who keep telling you what a great job you're doing? Does it come from looking back on your performance or your portfolio or your resume and considering all that you've accomplished? Some people believe God loves them because of Jesus, but also because of every great thing they've done. And that's a very dangerous place to be. Because just like Jesus despises shame, he hates arrogance. Remember how Jesus talked to arrogant people in the Gospels? He wasn't very kind to them. But he was true to them. He told them the truth. And by doing so, he loved them. But at the cross... Both shame and arrogance are destroyed. Because the cross of Jesus Christ reminds us how sinful we are and lost and how cherished and loved we are at the same time. That reminds us that God doesn't accept you because of you. He accepts you because of Jesus and what Jesus has done. Looking back to the cross changes everything about us. It changes how we live every day. I want to give you some examples of how the cross changes us every day. When we look back to it and remember what happened there. It means that when someone wrongs me, I'm able to forgive them and not look down on them. Because Jesus has forgiven me. Because he died for me when I was his enemy. I didn't have to get right with Jesus before he forgave me or before he accepted me. He did that first. And that allows me to love and accept people who wrong me. When I'm tired or spent and someone asks me for help, I can forget about what I need. I can spend myself on other people for their good. Because Jesus died of exhaustion and asphyxiation for my sin. When I see an opportunity to impress someone with my knowledge or accomplishments or with my knowledge of the Bible or something like that, I'm able to keep my mouth shut sometimes. Because I don't need praise from people. I don't need that because I have praise from God. He accepts me in Christ. There's one thing worth boasting about, the cross of Jesus. When I start asking, what's in it for me? How many times do we ask that question in our minds? What's, what's in it for me? Why should I go here? Why should I do this? Why should I give my money? You know. When I start asking what's in it for me, I can remember that Jesus, on the night he was betrayed... He wasn't asking what's in it for me. He was asking, Father, what is your will? I'm ready to do your will, whatever it is, whatever it costs me. When I open my wallet, I can look back to the cross. I can remember that Jesus Christ emptied himself for us. He gave up his right to glory. He, He gave up his right to do whatever he wanted to, and he lived for his father's glory. He pointed everyone to his father. He continually pointed people away from himself to his father. He gave up his right to serve, and instead he became a, or to be served. Instead, he became a servant, and he gave up his life. Jesus is the most generous person who's ever lived, and my life is meant to point people to Jesus. It changes the way I spend my money and use my money. When my friends try to persuade me to join them in sinful behavior, I can say no because Jesus died so that I could die to sin. I've died to sin, so how can I live for sin anymore? When people make fun of me or are rude to me or put me down for my faith and my allegiance to Jesus, I can rejoice because the same things happened to Jesus. People beat him up. They murdered him because of the things he said and did. If I'm living for God's glory, I can expect to suffer for my faith, and that's a good thing. When I find other Christians to be really difficult to get along with or just annoying, I know this never happens to you guys, but when I look back at the cross, I can accept them and love them, no matter how they behave. I can serve them. I can give myself to them because of who Jesus is and what he did on the cross. When I gain a position of power or influence, when I win in my life, and I gain some position, God grants me some position of power or influence over other people, I can use that to love and serve, not to get what I want. Because that's exactly what Jesus did with all of his power. He took all of his power and authority right to the cross. When I see other disciples or Christians in need, and I'm tempted to say, you know, other people can take care of that. I'm too important or busy or to go out of my way and help these people. I can remember this, that no act of love in Christ goes unnoticed by God. So when one of my friend's kids needs their diaper changed, I don't want to do that, but I'm not above that. I've done it and I'll continue to do it when I can muster up the strength. <laughs> because of what Jesus has done for me, when someone else's kid comes up to me after church and asks me for a drink of water, I'm not above that. You might see me telling my kid to leave me alone and get to get it themselves <laughs> at times. I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but if someone else's kid comes to me, I mean, we tend to think, uh, where's your parents? I'm too busy to do this for this kid. Jesus said in Mark 9:41, while there were children on his lap, for truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. He was saying that no task is beneath you if you're my disciple. That's what he's saying. And he lived it, by the way. When I see the sink is full of dirty dishes or the laundry basket's full of clean clothes that need to be folded, I'm tempted to say, you know, I work full time. This is Vicki's job. She's better at it anyway. But I need to remember that Jesus was willing to do anything for the sake of his followers and for the glory of God. No task was beneath him, and he told me to love my wife as he loves me, and give. and he gave himself up for me. When I'm with someone who doesn't know Jesus... And I get this thought in my mind. You know, I wonder if they know Jesus. I wonder wonder what God wants to do in their life. I wonder who they could be in Christ. What do I have to be afraid of? Jesus died on the cross. I mean, he took all the shame on the cross. What am I afraid of? I have the best message anyone's ever heard. Who am I to keep that to myself? I'm to be spreading that joy everywhere I go. And because of what happened on the cross, I can do that. Jesus is with me to do that. You know what the difference is between someone who's been changed by the glory of God and someone who hasn't? The person who's not been changed by God's glory looks at the cross and then they look away. They look at the cross and they see ugliness or they see shame or they see only violence and hate or some just another man's suffering. But the person who's seen God's glory never stops looking at the cross because they see the cross and they realize what Jesus did on the cross is the most important thing about me. So I'm going to challenge you today to look back on the cross and remember who you are. You are a sinner capable of crucifying an innocent man. Crucifying an innocent person. We put him there. Your sin is bad enough that Jesus had to die. There was no other way for God to remove your sin other than the brutal death of his own son. But God did it. He did it. On the cross, said, Jesus said it's finished. He did remove your sin. The Bible says you're dead to sin. You're alive to God. You're a new creature through faith in Jesus. And that, my friends, should make us the most humble and bold people in this world. Because we know that there is now nothing that stands between us and God. We will never be condemned. No one on this earth can separate us from the love of God because of what Jesus has done on the cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy that you've shown us in the cross of Jesus Christ. Lord, your word says that anyone who forgets that his sin has been forgiven is nearsighted. And they've forgotten the best news that there is. Lord, let us not be people who are nearsighted, but make us people who are focused on the cross of Jesus, where we have been changed. Our relationship with you is alive because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Our sin has been removed. We've been given the righteousness of Christ. We've been given new life through the death and resurrection of Jesus. So we pray today that you would change us today, that you would change us this week when we're tempted to think about ourselves and what we need, when we're tempted to look away from the cross and look at our problems and our needs and our wants and our selfish ambitions and, or our sin and how bad we are and how mad you must be at us, God. I pray that you would turn our attention to the cross of Jesus, Lord, the most beautiful picture of your glory, God that we have. And we give you all the glory this morning. It's in Christ's name. Amen.